Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Typical personality developmental theory shows that younger children need to internalize safe representations of their families and their worlds so that we know that it's important and we worry about any experience which might disrupt a healthy internalization as they grow up. These are equally important emotional milestones with older children as well. And psychiatry is also concerned about the impact of such stresses on the biological systems and how that will affect appropriate psychobiological development. We worry about younger children who only know their parents by mommy and daddy, the sounds of their voices, and the like. Recently, there has been a lot of discussion about the separation of families emigrating to the United States, and I thought it would be very necessary to talk a lot about concerns that we as professionals, and perhaps we as a society, need to have about these families and the children. Guadalupe Laura is a social worker in Detroit, and I was listening to her history about all the things that she's done related to this and similar problems, and she's kind enough to join us to discuss these issues. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We cannot control the world in which a lot of these families and children live, so we don't have a lot of ability to modify their future. But the question is, the starting point, do we have any information from other similar cases of such separations that will serve to us as to what do we expect, as much as we can project, what do we expect to be the impact of these separations on the children and the families? In my work at the immigration department, I had the privilege of working part of 12, 2012, and all of 2013 on a special project developing educational materials for juvenile judges and child welfare workers on resources, benefits that were available for these unaccompanied children or UAC children as they were termed and and they are referred to. And I visited the site where these children were being placed when they came in through the border and then later these contract agencies that were holding the children, evaluating, doing psychosocial assessments and assessing the level of education because all of these children were, they had schools within these centers with certified teachers, licensed social workers, psychologists that did tests. And what we learned is that many of these children were suffering from trauma Some of them needed long-term services. Many of the children were suffering from guilt, from leaving their siblings and family behind. Many of the children had eating disorders. And when the staff worked with these children, they found that the eating disorders centered around anxiety about having food and not having had food where they came from and recognizing or knowing that their family didn't have food. And so all of these things were barriers for them to adjust. Some children had psychiatric problems. They came with some severe mental problems. But the most important thing was the separation. These children came with this sense of hope that they were going to connect with relatives here and that later at some point they would connect with their family. I think when they are robbed of that feeling or that belief or that hope that they will be connected, then children don't do so well. And I 
think of how different those children were from the children today at the border who were separated from their parents, something that will have long-lasting consequences for the children who still have no hope, have no sense where their parents are. We hear the system has lost some of the information of where possibly some of these parents are. So definitely some long-term consequences emotionally for some of these children and their families as well. There is such an obvious difference that we as people in mental health need to consider between the difference of a toddler, an elementary school age child, and a teenager insofar as accommodating to these rapid and imposed separations, especially like you just said, when they come here thinking it's going to be something else. Do we have any sense that the younger ones are going to be more seriously and negatively affected by this than the older ones? Do the older ones, do we think, basically going to understand it and have more anger? How do we approach this whole potential mess, to use the term? Well, I will tell you my own experience as a social worker here in the Hispanic community at a Latino agency serving families involved in different levels of immigration status. And I have found that the young children, the young toddlers, if they have somebody to love them, to care for them, they're going to be okay if they are connected along the way they're told about the parent, where they are. And it has a lot to do with the culture of poverty, you know, the kinds of experiences that people have that they understand, the older people that are caring for these children, that there are consequences of poverty, but there is love. There are people who are taking care of them. But what I've seen with children who do not have that, who are kind of like in a a group home, and I think people that are working there, the care providers, may be well-intentioned, but the reality is there's not enough staff to really cuddle and be with these children. Those children have a harder time. And I also have seen with the older children, as I mentioned earlier, that they come, yes, they suffer tremendously to get here, but people need to understand that while we hear It's very frustrating for me as a provider to hear non-providers or people in the community, even people from these same countries that have been here for many years. How could a parent have sent a child here alone that is just abused? How could they do it? They did it because they love them so much, and it's not a new phenomenon. Other parents have done this over the years. The Italian parents during Mussolini sent children here. The Jewish parents sent children here. They want them to succeed, to have a life, and the Cubans did the same thing. One in 80 people die. They are murdered in these countries, especially in Honduras, which is one of the countries where these children come from. And in Guatemala and El Salvador, tremendous abuse of power, of resources. And so people are trying to live, to survive, given the cultural context of where they come from. So that it is important to know where these children come from and these families come so that we do not impose our own social context on these children and families. Have to understand what systemic poverty is like for these children and families. And what most these parents want is for their children to be safe. And they all expect for these children to be connected with relatives that are in the country. And from my experience when I work with 
these programs. That's what usually happened. These children were qualified for one of these benefits through immigration, were connected with relatives that lived here. And then those relatives within their particular communities, almost always there are resources of other Hispanic agencies who would connect for the particular resources that that family needed. The most important thing that they wanted was education for the children to be enrolled in a school. So it's a difficult question you ask, but it really is you have to start as a social worker, what we've trained, and you probably trained when you were a social worker. You start where that client is at. You start where that child or that older child, that teenager is at. And if they are angry, the anger is not the problem. It is a symptom of an underlying inhumane thing that's probably happened to them along the way. I don't want to say that it's the normal manner, but definitely the suffering that they're going through requires them to do extreme things. When I've talked to families, definitely not to judge them or anything like that, but ask them, did you know that your child was going to go through this, that it would be challenging? And they knew that it was going to be challenging. Of course, no parent expects that a child is going to be raped or traumatized or trafficked, but that is not all of these children. Maybe it may have happened to some that we interviewed, but a lot of parents knew that this would be challenging. But what was the alternative to stay there and wait for death to happen? No, they were going to fight to try to get out of that and to maybe get a better life for their child. But definitely to stay would be death. One of the things that comes to mind as you talk is that most of us really have not. I'm going to go even more than that. The vast majority, 99% plus, have actually not spoken to these kids. We really don't know. It depends upon what we read. You're giving it a very different third or fourth dimension of what these people are going through. Do you find that people don't really understand the life of the immigrant before they get here and the reason that motivates them to immigrate? I definitely find that the majority of people that are here, they are well-intentioned and they want to help the children. And oftentimes, you know, it reminds me when I first started out in foster care and children went into foster care because their parents did drugs or they weren't able to provide for their child. So the child came into foster care and foster parents and workers, some workers were well-intentioned. And when the child talked, if it was a child that was older talked angrily or acted angry and talked about their family, especially if it was a family that was of African-American or Latino background, because those were the children that were in the system. The foster parent oftentimes would collude with the child and say, oh, yes, your family was terrible. Oh, yes, we're going to take good care of you and you're going to be so much better. Instead of to help the child see that the behavior that happened to the child was bad, but that often the parent was going through a particular situation. What possibly could have happened to the parent to get to this point, but that there could be hope for things to get better because that's what our process of foster care was to help the family get back together instead of also thinking how horrible these parents send these children over here. And that's what I find, not only a lack of true education, but also on their own, an awareness about themselves and what they really believe. To be a 
good therapist or a psychiatrist or a social worker working with families. You really have to check yourself about what is it that you do believe about the people that you are charged to work with and what do you really know about them that you meet them for one hour or maybe 30 minutes. How do you prepare? And you can't just read books about them because that's nice to get an overview, but then you have to operationalize that information with the person that is right in front of you. How do you open that dialogue, that human dialogue with that person, or do you feel you have to remain removed? It's very difficult to work with these people, the immigrants, if you feel you've got to remain distant from them. And that is challenging. I find that people want to start not where the client is at, but what is comfortable to the provider of the service. We have to really check ourselves on that. When the kids are sent back to their homeland, do we have any data about what's available for them in terms of mental health services? I know they're they're paltry. I, I mean, that, that much I know. But I'm envisioning a child coming here separated, going to the various places where they're kept, and sent back home. The anger, the confusion, the sense of lack of security any anywhere in the world. Do we have any follow-up of what happens to these kids when they go back? I know that in Washington there are several national organizations that have that do work with these three countries in particular Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras and I also know that the government was working with the government of those countries to provide money to create some type of programs for these children like child welfare type of programs but I don't have that data right at hand. Okay. But I do know that there are those relationships with national groups that are working with these UAC populations that are going down there. And I know that the Lutheran and Catholic Society services, that Catholic Social Services and the Lutheran Social Services, who are the two groups that were given the contract by the Office of Refugee Services for these children, they have programs and they have research data that they're keeping about this. But I will just tell you that the availability of these services is poor getting to these children. Was there any sense, and again, from what you've learned and what you've observed, that within the groups of the kids, that the older kids tended to take care of the younger kids? Was there the effort for them to make a, to make a safety net for the younger ones? Was there any sense of that, or was it totally fragmented? What I found was that when I met the children, they were already in the placements, in these facilities where they were housed and educated and then later transitioned to a family member. I saw children just playing and doing what children do. There were children, as I mentioned earlier, who had some emotional issues and some health issues that were related to their journey and also related to a sense of loss, of missing their family and guilt issues about what comforts they had now and, and worrying about their families, what they were suffering. But the children were doing what children do. If, if you didn't know and you went in there, they were playing volleyball or they were in the gym or they were in school. They were all being taught English. I don't know what's going on with this population right now because I have not visited, but I just 
read like everybody else and can talk to other people at the national level, the separation. This is so different from what ever happened before. You read and hear people say, oh, this was happening before. Not like it is this time. We never did that. Kids came here without their parents. This was different. They're coming with their mothers and they separated them. I don't know what the long-term consequences will be for this population. When I left in 2013, the number had gone from several years back, 7,000 of these children coming across, to then it had swelled to 50,000. But a lot of it had to do with President Obama introduced DACA and allowed children that had come with their families as babies and had been here and fit the criteria to get temporary status to work and extend it for two years and then later proposed to extend it another amount of time. The word that got back to these countries from what they call the traffickers, the people that get money like you pay them, the word that a lot of people use is coyote. And the word from those people who clearly run a business was, oh, you should send your children now because there is this program and they could be citizens and then they can bring the rest of the family over. A lot of misinformation. And when people are desperate and have nothing, they hold on to whatever hope they can. That explained a lot of that swell of children coming in that started coming in around right after that announcement was made. One of the things that I shudder as I think about this is to have a child come with their parent and then without any preparation for the separation to be separated, to one minute be with your mom and dad and the next minute not. That reverberates in my head. A lot. Oh, it's terrible. I don't even like to think too much about it because I can't do anything about it from where I'm at other than educate people. It's, it's frightening, at, especially the toddlers. I mean, we've seen it here when a mother separates after being with a child for a whole year even or two years and they send them to visit their grandmother. The child comes back and is so angry at the mother. And even though they can't talk yet, the way that they respond to the mother, they're so angry because they were separated and you wonder how that child is going to fare as they get older and they're still waiting and there's no mother. I don't even want to think about it. It's not pleasant. So what do you see from a social worker perspective, from a mental health perspective, what can we do to help? We're not obviously here to discuss the political component of this and that's not our mandate, although it certainly could be part of it, but it's not our mandate today. Exactly. What do we do to help these, the emotional response that these families? If, if one of those young, and I've had this conversation with young people here, and that is to, to provide balance to that anger. I focus on the strengths of that young person that i like, for instance, if they're still in school, even though they're doing poorly because they're so angry, they're getting into fight. A lot of it, I try to, first of all, focus on the positive things that they're still in school and try to share with them examples of things that I've seen and that, for one, about that anger, that for a lot of kids that are in the school here, they don't have a lot of things. They don't have, you know how in the school the kids can be mean about the clothes that you wear and they're so angry. They think that with that anger and if kids are afraid of them, then they will 
have some kind of power, that they will be respected, that they will be seen as part of that group. And so I try to explain to them other similar scenarios that I can see that the anger is like a way to survive, that it must hurt to know that where is my mother or where is my father? Why do I see these families when I play with other kids and their families? They make them go to school every day. Nobody makes me go to school. If I want to go to school, I can go. If I don't want, they see it. Nobody cares. And so I try to redirect and try to explain to them that, that they can make choices and that perhaps their mother is somewhere trying to find out where they are, not to give up hope. When someone gives up hope, I've seen kids do bad things that are hurtful not only to them but hurtful to others. I try to engage them. I try to have that human connectedness with them. And it takes a lot of you. It's a lot easier to be separate and to not connect with them because they will call you and then what will you do? Are you going to be present for them? And just to say that I see a lot of teachers who go the extra mile with these children and social workers in the schools as stressed as they are, but I also understand why some people, it's already so stressful for them with the limited resources that they have that they feel they have to shut themselves down at some level because you have to take care of yourself too. Otherwise, how are you going to take care of other people? It is challenging, very, very challenging. Very sage advice and the sort of thing that we all need to give. It sounds almost so trite to put it like this, but we need to give serious thought to it. Guadalupe Lore is a social worker in Detroit. She, I thank you so much. I wish we had hours to look at all the subtle little details that I'm sure you could give to us, but that's not our reality. But our reality is that at least you, you gave me some interesting things to think about, and I do want to thank you, and I'm looking forward to um, giving this to our Thank audience. you. It's a pleasure. And thank you for sharing this information with the broader audience. Thank you. Oh, we will do it.